I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm not ready. I'm eating chocolate, but it's fine. Hello, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive politics has a lot to offer the modern world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and I'm joined by the Chair of Progress, Alison McGovern MP. So, today is International Women's Day, and it's not only a vitally important day for gender equality, but also a day with a long and dramatic socialist history. Now... We all know Ali as the brilliant MP and campaigner that she currently is. Oh, stop, stop. Oh, no, I'm going to carry on being flattering. But I thought this week it would be a good idea to get to know the woman behind the incisive economic analysis and impressive football knowledge. So, Ali, I guess the first question is, what made you want to have a career in politics? Is it something you always wanted to do? I was always always interested um, and I suppose... In politics, being a member of parliament is a job that people have heard of. Mm. And I kind of wanted to be involved and join the Labour Party when I was at university, although I didn't, I wasn't involved in Labour students. Um, oh, that makes me feel a lot better because yeah, I wasn't I really either. Was, I really <laughs> was not involved in Labour students. At the time, there was a, a big uh, fiery debate going on about um, tuition fees and it was a very different fee structure and proposal that had been introduced mm-hmm. uh, then than we have now. And I was, how can I put this? I was much more excited by the Labour government's plan for uh, paid for childcare for the first time in our country's history than I was bothered by some of the very, very wealthy people who were ar- around me at university having to make some sort of contribution, you know, <laughs> given the given the relative level of privilege. So I was not engaged with Labour students at all, but no I joined. Fair. And and later, a bit later on, I like I did some leaflets and stuff for, for the local party when mm-hmm. I was at uni, but wasn't really involved. And then later on, I kind of, when I started working, I got involved with my local Labour party in uh, Southwark, got really quite involved and one thing led to another, you know, I kind of, I remember um, being sat in a branch meeting, uh, one of the first times, mm. and the lovely Kirsty McNeil, who is a very, very good friend of mine and um, a senior bod at Save the Children these days, um, Kirsty sort of came over to me and was like, hey, how are you doing, like, going out campaigning at the weekend? 
um, do you want to come? And I was sort of like, well, you know, okay. Didn't really know what it involved. And mm-hmm. they were doing a petition about to get, to improve the kind of social housing locally. And yeah. that I felt like this is, this is what I want to do. And then a bit, you know, a bit later on, I became a counsellor and I'd, I'd always sort of really thought that I would go home to Merseyside at some point. And as I was saying, one thing led to, to another, my predecessor retired. And so I decided that that would be that and that my own journey, I suppose, was indicative of something that I thought was wrong about our country, which is that the reason why I went to London University yeah. was because when I was growing up, there just weren't enough kind of opportunities and careers of it. Look, you could, people could stay in Merseyside and get a job and a career, but there just weren't quite enough opportunities like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the opportunities seem to be like in London. So I thought to myself, well, I'd quite like opportunities. So I will go to London. And it was only when I was there, I realised how stark the regional inequality was. Yeah. And so the reason I suppose I really thought I would like to be a parliamentarian is because I would like other people not to have to feel that they have to leave the place where they love and where they grew up to have the kind of opportunities that they would like. And that was why I decided to be a member of parliament. That's a really nice story. That's really heartwarming. Well, I don't know about heartwarming, but that was, that, that was how it happened. And it's been, it's been an amazing journey because I feel very lucky to represent the area that I was Mm -hmm. born in, that I grew up in, um, and that I really love. Um, It's an incredible kind of community, very close. Everyone knows each other. Yeah. Um, You know, it's like we have a kind of like saying like, that's the we're all like, you know, you you can, if you meet someone else from the we're all like you probably, chances are they'll, you'll have some connection. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing kind of opportunity to be, the representative for the place where your primary school teachers still live you know like sometimes I like I'd be like canvassing people and they'd be like oh hello Alison you know do you remember me <laughs> you went to school with my daughter and what well, you know and I will have last seen them when I was seven yeah and they'll still know who you are and that's yeah. a really nice yeah, yeah. sense of community yeah yeah um so you're an MP now of course um is being an MP what you expected when you first thought about it I think in some ways it is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, a lot of the things that people really get um, a lot out of talking to people, listening to what their constituents have got to say, um, the impact that you can have, it is, it is what you would expect. And it is, it is really, really motivating sometimes when you see the, for want of a a better expression, shit that people are dealing with. Yeah. Trying to break down some of the institutional barriers to get things right for people is very satisfying. You know, I've recently had a couple of people come to surgery who've been victims of domestic violence, Mm -hmm. who've then been, because of the knock-on of that, have been in debt or have been having difficult uh, benefits, problems. And you see that stuff and it's a privilege to to talk to those people and to listen to them. Um, And then we can do something about it and that is what I thought it would be. And that's why I wanted to to do it. I mean, Brexit wasn't expected Mm. and that has been a complete and total nightmare (laughs) from the word go, you know? So I, in some ways didn't see that coming, but much of it. Yeah. No, it's, it's very rewarding job. And if 
people are wondering whether or not they ought to do it, I think I would always say to people, err on the side of yes, because it's, you know, chances come few and far between. And so if you operate as if, you know, you would like to do something, mm. then you might get that chance and then it's really worthwhile. Fantastic. And on a slightly less happy and heartwarming note, because at the moment it sounds very empowering and I love it. Uh, International Women's Day is all about empowering women. Um, but to go for the protest side of International Women's Day, we hear a lot about Westminster politics being a very male-dominated environment and a lot about the power structures that women have sort of struggled against within Westminster. Um, why do you think that exists or why do you think that's been the case? Oh, I think it's just, I think that's just history. That's just you know, the force of history imposing itself on people who have who, people who don't have those values today mm -hmm. or wouldn't otherwise have those values today. And actually, Rachel Reeves is just uh, one of my colleagues um, from Leeds West um, is just releasing her new book, uh, The Women of Westminster, mm. in which she tells the story of the very first women um, who were elected I mean, most people could probably tell you that Nancy Astor was the first woman to take up her seat. They probably don't know much about Margaret Wintringham, who was the second MP. Yeah. They know even less about number three, number four, number five, number six. You know, people might know a bit about Ellen Wilkinson, who was yeah. a very early MP, very small, petite, but fiery. Um, <laughs> they used to call her the fiery atom woman MP who was a Labour MP who was really, really a uh, strong campaigner um, on the rights of women and working people. But like people there are few and far between that anybody's ever really heard of and that wasn't necessarily an accident although it may have been unconscious because when Nancy Astor first uh came into um the house I think I'm right in saying she's she said that you know her male colleagues would have rather had a rattlesnake in the chamber <laughs> rather than her and that's true because they didn't want to upset the power structures so so the hiding of women and the yeah. early women pioneers in politics was to try and diminish their contribution, in my view. And that's why we feel that force of history even today. Like mm. women's contributions are constantly forgotten because it upsets the power balance and people don't like that. And maybe you'll know the answer to this, but I feel like a piece of trivia I've heard is that in the gallery in the House of Lords, they used to have little curtains so you couldn't see women's legs. Still they, do. They still do? Yeah. The ladies' gallery has curtains. Yeah, because because the, there was some culture that like young women would go to the House of Lords like to hang out to yeah to like be seen right so look so, for a husband in the House of Lords ladies yeah. heard it here first right and like I mean it's a bit like how when women first started to play football at yeah. the turn of the last century it was actually really successful like crowds of like fifty thousand by the nineteen twenties and you know, it was, men didn't like it. So they banned women for 50 years. And the same is true of the House of Commons. It's not like one continuous sweep of progress. Like most people in this country cannot name the first woman cabinet minister. Margaret Bonfield, most women cannot name her. Why? Because she was part of Ramsay MacDonald's yeah. government that was seen to be, you know, uh, betraying of the labour movement and, uh, it didn't in the end have a successful means of standing against global yeah. economic um, problems. But, sh but everyone can remember Ramsay MacDonald, you know, yeah. like, so 
there's this constant process of trying, I think, to um, submerge the achievements of women. And that's why Rachel's book's important, but it's why today, even in the House of Commons today, like we have to be vigilant against um, the lack of recognition of the work of women in politics. Absolutely. And I know there are far more brilliant women in Parliament than there have been historically now, and that you're all very supportive of each other. Um, in fact, there's a great photo exhibition of all the MPs. Uh, it was up in Portcullis House, but you tell me, um, now it's in moved to Liverpool. It has. It's now at the Open Eye Gallery in Liverpool. So um, 209 Women is a brilliant exhibition. And, and we talked a little bit about it on the Christmas podcast, I mm -hmm. think. It's an artist collective uh, project that to photograph, um, to create fine art photography piece of all of the 209 women members of parliament. And um, it's really very good. And most women in politics have never had their portrait painted, mm. have, you know, the, the place is full of works of art of great men. And, yeah, absolutely. you know, fine. But even when there's been quite a lot of women elected we we don't have an oil painting of margaret bonfield or margaret margaret winteringham or any of the early pioneers we yeah. just don't have them it wasn't seen to be appropriate even though those women were elected and were absolute pioneers of their own right so we are slowly but surely kind of getting to grips with how we not just do our politics but also tell our story yeah. in a completely different way i mean i think it's striking in recent years how if you think about the kind of labor side of politics, you've got the Blairites, the Brownites, the Corbynistas. Um, nobody ever, ever, ever mentions uh, a woman mm. as having led a group of politicians in that way. No woman could possibly have their own ideas, Addy. Come on. I know. I know. <laughs> Silly me. But like, why why not? Why not? You know, I, I um I was a founder member of Liz Kendall's campaign to be leader of the Labour Party. Nobody has ever, ever thought of me as a Kendallite. Yeah. Um, it, it's But bizarre. I do. I, I find it really frustrating because people come up to me and they say, you're an X, you're a Y. And I was like, I'm not an X or a Y. I have my own opinions on yeah. things. Some of them agree with Blair, some of them agree with Brown, some of them don't agree with either of them. Yeah. That's totally fine. And also, like, those men who've led the Labour Party, you know, they... They dealt with stuff that is no longer a question. Mm. And there are questions now that were just not on the agenda when they were leading the Labour Party. So why we would constantly, you know, exist in a frame of their making, I have no idea. Now, let's take a quick break before our quick fire round. And if you haven't already, share the love and share this podcast with a feminist friend. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think it's time to say the serious bit's over. I've got some quick fire questions. Oh my for you. goodness! Are you ready? Oh my goodness! This um, is not like a quiz, is it? It's not like a quiz. Okay, because no, you it's... know I don't like quizzes. I know you don't like quizzes, and I know I've written quizzes and they haven't gone very well. It's yeah, stressful. I'd never forgive you if you tried to make to make me do a quiz, Hannah. It's kind of a quiz about you. Oh my goodness! But it's not a quiz about facts about you because that would be weird, obviously. Yeah, that would be weird, um, and also I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't know them, and then that would be really weird. <laughs> um, but it's more just a little bit about your experience. So I guess, what's your best moment been so far as my, an MP? My best moment? Yeah. Oh my goodness. My best moment. Okay, well, there's been a lot of kind of quite negative stuff, but actually a real high point, and I probably shouldn't say this because we did break the rules to do it, but seeing Hannah Bardell do Keep Your Beat in the Chamber was hilarious. Oh, I love that. That was brilliant. And it's a little known fact that it was me who made the video of her doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, now everyone knows. <laughs> so that was, that, I would say that was probably one of the real moments of fun that has been had over the past couple of years. Brilliant. And sort of the other side, what's the worst moment been? Uh, Joe being murdered. Yeah. Nothing prepared uh, me for that. And what's your best canvassing story? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, everybody's got a naked man, right? So everybody who's ever been on a Labour door knockers at some point had the door open to them by a naked man. Um, I once had a campaigner go <laughs> for a wee on the wall of a house. Oh, brilliant. Next door okay. to where I was. Yeah. Uh, door knocking which which wasn't so great and you know I re really really didn't know where to look and then <laughs> someone had to say to him look you can't do that <laughs> you really can't do it's that really not appropriate for this situation really not appropriate um and goodness me canvassing stories um I had one that was kind of funny and kind of like heartbreaking at the same time mm. I was having this discussion with a gentleman about um immigration and never shy away from discussion on immigration no. always have it most importantly listen to what people have got to say because like especially in the context of the european union a lot of the problems that people perceive about immigration are actually to do with migration to this country that's nothing to do with the european yeah, union like from absolutely. outside so you know you've always got to be really careful and make no assumptions and listen to people so i'm like listening to this gentleman saying that he doesn't like uh, immigration very much and he, he he has an issue with social housing and he said you know that there was a family from Turkey who um who had come to an estate the Mill Park estate in my mm -hmm. constituency which is you know nice place to live there's a lot quite a lot of social housing that's very popular and he was saying that they'd been given a uh a social home um, on the mill park and what an outrage this was and they had been given it ahead of local families yeah and i said you know well look um the rules do prioritize people with kids 
and you know, we can have a discussion about whether how we could get more homes locally and blah, blah, blah. And he's an absolute high dudgeon, absolute outrage. But the fact is, I do know my constituency very, very well. Yeah. And because, you know, members of parliament are quite busy, there isn't a takeaway in my constituency that I don't know personally. Uh, and so when he says to me, and then that family, and then that family, they opened up a kebab shop in Eastern Village. And I said to him, sir, come on now. There isn't a kebab shop in Eastern Village. <laughs> <laughs> and it, kind of, it kind of broke the ice. Um, but yeah, all lots. Of, I might write a book about door knocking one day and all of the funny things that happen. I think so. What's your favourite, well, I hope you have one, but what's your favourite pre-speech hype track? Oh my goodness. Okay, so, well, it probably would be one of my general election songs. Okay, because I, I know you have those. I yeah. do. I have, oh, every general election, I always like have a song that is like on the radio at the time or for whatever reason. So in, so I would definitely listen to my general election songs, I think. So in 2010, it was Florence and the Machine, Dog Days Are Over. That Absolutely. came out at the time. It was off and on in the car. And I don't know, it's really upbeat. In 2015, do you remember that uh, Rihanna, Paul McCartney, four or five seconds thing? Yes. Yeah, so that is the one from 2015. And I don't really know why. Again, I think it just came out at the time and it, yeah. and I really liked it and it was always on. In 2017, it was Entrance and Set You Free, which is an old school, early 90s dance track. Amazing. And the reason why that was our 2017 general election track is because... There is a bar in New Ferry near where my constituency office lives. Constituency uh, uh, office lives where my constituency <laughs> office is, and it seemed like every time we were going out campaigning, that bar was pumping out "Set You Free" by Entrance. So that was my 2017 general election song, and uh, I think yeah, for me, like for me, listening to those pieces of music just takes me back to those three elections and. You know, there, there's something deeply emotional about an election in that you spend all your time just doing like the same small tasks time after time after time. You know, point, go to a person, find that person, talk to them, listen to them, find out where they are, try to understand, knock on the next door, yeah. find that person, listen to them, understand them, try and understand, you know, again and again and again. And being able to do an election is about um, being able to do like small and simple tasks over and over again and do them really well. And so you kind of get in the mindset of seeing polling day, understanding what's all of this work that you need to do. And then you just become like really immersed in it. And the emotion of elections just absolutely takes over. And so I, for me that those are like really important political moments. So it would always be, yeah. One of the three of my general election songs. One of the three songs. big songs, yeah. yeah. I remember before the first time I recorded the podcast as host, um, I know you have very good and very extensive music taste. <laughs> and Ali was like, okay, what's your hype song? And I don't think I've ever been as nervous about anything in my entire life. as I was like, okay, which of my terrible choice of music songs will impress Ali? And I was like, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. It can't be something from Hamilton. Come on, Henna. I, do you know what? I think this is a great new idea for the podcast. I think we should have podcast, um, we should make podcast playlists. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I, think... I mean, I have a terrible taste in music, but it's going to be main, mainly sort of 90s R&B. That's okay. I think that's okay. If you can make it work, 
you can make it work like we should create a, some kind of like podcast playlist so that people uh after they i don't know been listening to the podcast walking their dog or whatever can <laughs> then flick over to the spotify playlist and it goes nice you. and quickly yeah yeah. yeah, keep the pace up. Okay, last quick fire question: Who is your favorite feminist, and why? Do you have one? Well, probably Barbara Castle. Okay, go on. So obviously Harriet, Harriet Harman was my constituency MP, and I think she's a total hero and is really, you know, amazing person. I also know her and have worked with her, and yeah, so it's a little bit different. But if I were to pick somebody who I didn't know. And, you know, somebody who I, from having read their life story, think is completely like a really, really crucial figure, I would say Barbara Castle, because um, firstly, because she lived through the Second World War and has an amazing um, tale of having become a local councillor um, in Camden just after the Second World War mm-hmm. and and what that was like, um, you know, de- dealing with the consequences of, of war um, in a London borough were like you know, literally kind of having to work out how to pick up the bits of um, rubble, how to deal with like genuine food shortages that, that, you know, even with today's food bank problems and all the rest of it, you know, people were dealing with the necessities of life in a way that I think that too often we forget about. Then she goes um, uh, into parliament and was absolutely pioneering. So the kind of generation of MPs of which she was a part were one of the first to do surgeries at all Mm. a lot of members of parliament didn't even go that much to their constituencies much less come from there much less like try and actually listen to people so they started them being much more of a culture of actually listening to people then um you know she becomes uh minister she she was a transport minister she couldn't drive I mean like imagine the chutzpah of that right (laughs) you're a woman minister in charge of men and their cars and she herself couldn't drive and was the person who introduced the seatbelt. I mean, amazing political skill. Um, eventually she became, so she was part of the anti-common um, market campaign with Tony Benn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she was not a pro-European at all. But eventually became a member of the European Parliament. And actually, if you read her autobiography, which I, if it, if you if people haven't read her autobiography, I would really recommend it. It's called Fighting All The Way. And it's absolutely... I'll make sure there's a link in the description. Yeah, do, do, do. Because it's an absolutely brilliant story. And towards the end of that book, she talks about um, Jacques Delors going to um, TUC in 1988 and explaining that, you know, countries would keep their own identity. They would keep their own culture as part of what was becoming the European community. But that... Um, that actually what we needed was solidarity across yeah. across countries. She became a member of the European Parliament, leader of the British uh, delegation at a certain point, and she became a pro-European. And so to go on that journey, to me, demonstrates open-mindedness, bravery, um, expert political skills. So, Bob Castle. Fantastic. Very finally, do you have any tips for aspiring women in politics? Um, probably just do it because if you think too much about it you know you never will so you sometimes you just got to take decisions just do it um I would say these days I think I would definitely say try not to obsess too much about criticism because 
especially social media wise it's very mm. easy to find criticism of yourself and I think you know I think to when I was sort of first starting out when I was first uh especially when I first had to do telly you know it's, it's like really really not that great to be on television and then see what people say about it afterwards and it could really put you off so don't listen to it like I'm very happy and comfortable in my body shape these days mm. but I haven't always been and I think it would have really crushed me if if I'd allowed it to so I would say just do it try to keep criticism in perspective and be clear about what you're in it for and then it's all then it's always a choice like if you feel like like you got a duty to be involved or whatever then that's very good but also recognize that um we don't have to put up with people's bad behavior because of that duty it's always a choice great thanks a lot Alison. thank you for listening to the progressive britain podcast take a look at our show notes for a link to the barbara castle book that ali mentioned and also a great article i found from 2014 with five books that Alison thinks that all politicos should read by women have a fantastic International Women's Day. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. See you next time for our live podcast. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.